Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I'm excited to speak with Peter Orlowitz, who's a senior counsel and an alternate designated agency ethics official at the U.S. Railroad Retirement Board. Say that 10 times fast. In other words, Peter's a train lawyer, and I'm really excited to talk to him about it. I recently interviewed a plane lawyer, and now we're going to uh, fill that out on the feed with a train lawyer. Peter previously served as general attorney for the RBB for eight years before being promoted to senior counsel in 2022. He started his career in government as an attorney advisor at the Social Security Administration. He was honored by the RBB with the Special Active Service Award in 2020, recognizing his significant individual contribution to the board's efforts. Peter's a graduate of University of Chicago Law School, Go Maroons, or Go Phoenix, depending on how you want to play that one, and Illinois State University, Go Redbirds. Thanks for being here, Peter. I'm excited to get to do this. Thanks for having me. In my personal capacity, of course, nothing I say here should be taken as the official stance of the United States government or the agency I work for. Fantastic. Well, with that necessary disclaimer out of the way, let's start by hearing a little bit about your path and specifically your decision to become a lawyer. Was this always the plan or, or what? when did you decide to sort of make this your profession? It was really in undergrad that the plan started to coalesce. So my undergraduate degree is in criminal justice. I was working for the university police department at the time as a dispatcher. So, and I didn't have a clear idea as to what else I wanted to do. So I thought, okay, criminal justice classes, I can skate through some of those while I'm figuring out what I actually want my career to be. And Illinois State University criminal justice program kind of had three major prongs to it. So there were policing classes, there were corrections or prisons classes, and then there were courts classes. And it happened at the time, a lot of the courts classes were taught by adjunct faculty that were local judges or local attorneys, not so much the permanent faculty. A lot of the permanent faculty were more focused in the policing research or corrections research. And those were the classes that I gravitated toward, that I enjoyed the most, that I thought were the most fascinating and I wanted to dig into more. I had the benefit of a couple of good professors that encouraged me that thought I would be a good lawyer. The last step in the program is a practical internship through the folks I worked with at the police department. They made some suggestions and put me in touch with somebody at the state's attorney's office. So I did an internship with the state's attorney's office doing like discovery kind of preparation stuff and got to sit in on a couple of trials. And that set me up then to go to law school. And it's interesting because I just had a conversation with a listener who is currently in high school. And his question was sort of like, what should I major in in college to set myself up for a legal career? And my answer to him was, frankly, you should major in whatever you're interested or whatever you're good at, because the way the American sort of education system works primarily is that if you want to get a law degree, they teach you what you need to know in law school or for being truly candid when you're studying for the bar exam and in your first job. But you had a little bit of a background in college that you just described. And I guess I'm curious, is that something you'd recommend to somebody? Did you think it made your law school experience different having had that, that sort of coursework in your undergrad experience? I'm not sure. 
so like one of the interesting things that sort of happened because I had the criminal justice background, I started taking a bunch of like criminal law, criminal procedure kinds of classes. I thought that's what I was going to end up doing and that's what I wanted to do and ended up not doing so well in those classes. Hmm. <laughs> and that's not a reflection on like my degree or anything, but the undergrad experience of taking those kind of classes, I think is very different than what you get at a law school level or at a lawyer level. Absolutely. And so I think there's limited utility. It's helpful to know, like, is this the kind of thing that I would be interested in doing? Hmm. But in terms of practical preparation, I'm not sure how helpful it is. Got it. And talk about your graduation from law school. So you graduated in 2011, which was not a great time. Uh, I graduated right after that in 2012. Uh, I remember it well. It was not a great time to be looking for a job and especially a job in the federal government. And so I guess I'm curious if you can bring us back to that time of starting your legal career and thinking, what do I want to do? Why do I want to do it? And how am I going to get my first job? Yeah, it was really, really challenging. I was fortunate enough to, I got married right after the bar exam to a wonderful paralegal who I actually met in law school. If it wasn't for the fact that she had a full-time job and was willing to sort of support me through the process, I probably would have had to come up with a different solution much earlier. Hmm. But because I knew I wanted to do government, and I'll back up just a little bit to kind of give a bigger picture. Since I graduated high school, which is more than 20 years ago, I have worked in federal, state, county, and municipal levels of government, and I've spent less than a year total in any sort of private practice, any sort of private sector job. So like, I knew I wanted to do government. I just wasn't sure what that exactly was going to look like. So coming out of law school in 2011, when government hiring was lagging behind a lot of the other like law firm hiring and those sorts of things. It was a little bit of a lagging indicator. And 2010 was maybe the bottom of the recession. I've mm -hmm. heard that from other people. That was really when the most people got no offered or had trouble finding stuff. And so you had this large crop of people who had done summer associate work, didn't get offered by their firms. Mm -hmm. And at that point, none of the other firms were hiring. So then they had to displace into sort of the only environment left that had opening. Right. If you weren't already looking for a clerkship, that uh, boat had sort of sailed. But like the government, federal government honors programs were still taking applications. And so there was just this influx of new people. The year I graduated or the year I was applying for graduate jobs, I think the Department of Justice honors program went from 150 slots to about 85. So it got cut almost in half. So you had fewer slots. And then the other stat I heard, I applied for the honors program at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission because I had done a 2L internship with the Department of Energy. And so there's some overlap there, and I thought I'd had good experience. And I heard they had 1,200 applications for five mm, slots. Wow. And so I don't know how you sort through that many applications particularly. Sure. So it was really just a question of applying for anything and everything that I could possibly get my hands on that I was minimally qualified for and seeing what hit. And so I graduated in June of 2011, and it was September of 2012. So I had been out of school for more than a year, and I had been sworn into the bar for nine months before I got a paid job offer. Wow. I did some volunteer work in between, which helped me keep my skills sharp. 
for a legal aid organization, Prairie State Legal Services. And that also then kept me busy and involved with the legal profession. But that was a long time to be looking and it sucked. (laughs) For sure. For sure. And I guess I'm excited to hear that you ended up finding that government job and you've been doing that government job for a long time. But before we sort of go there, I do want to drill down a little bit and ask the question of, did you ever sort of lose hope that a government job wasn't going to be an option after you had done this undergraduate experience, done this law school experience? Because I'll be honest with you, one of the things I'm seeing now that I'm on the faculty side of things is these cycles in the labor, the legal labor market seem to come back. And I have students in my office telling me, you're never going to believe, and chances are I've already seen a version of that cycle before. And so your experience is probably not unique to you. Did you ever lose hope? And what do you say to somebody who sort of is in that position? Absolutely. No question I did. There were a couple of times when my wife and I had a serious conversation of like, do I start looking for dispatch jobs again? Because that's something I have five years experience doing. Hmm. Maybe. And then I don't know what the future would have looked like at that point. Because like once you take a non-lawyer job, there's always that fear of, is anybody really going to think I'm competitive for a, a real lawyer job anymore? So that was definitely a conversation that we had. The other thing was right before I got this offer from Social Security, I interviewed with them in April of 2012 and didn't get the job offer until September. So there was a long gap there where I just didn't hear anything. I'd had a couple of other interviews. Nothing was panning out. I was actually talking to a friend of a friend who had put me in touch with like a private firm that did intellectual property and copyright kind of law, which I knew nothing about. Hadn't taken a class on in law school, absolutely nothing. So at one point, like I drove down to the law school to look at one of the treatises in the library and read it in preparation for an interview. <laughs> right. And as it happened, like the day before I was supposed to talk to that law firm about something, some kind of opportunity that they would make for me, I got the call from Social Security. <laughs> and I was like, okay, fine. This is my door in. Yeah. And that's so interesting also, because I think there is sort of, I've seen this before also of sort of government jobs taking a little bit longer. There's often time between when an announcement is posted in interviews, there's time between when the interviews come. And then often if you need a security check or something else, there's additional time and it requires a great deal of patience and that's not always easy. So I think it's important to sort of tell those stories to remind people, if you're going through this, this is not that uncommon. But let's turn a little bit and talk about what you do now and what you've done over sort of the last almost decade working as a government trained lawyer. Tell me about what kinds of things you do every day, uh, what kind of cases you work on and all of that. So the, the Railroad Retirement Board is the agency I work for. We replace Social Security for railroad workers. So I'm less of a trained lawyer and more of a benefits lawyer, which is a little bit Fair. odd. But because there's so much train-specific or railroad-specific law, a lot of it kind of gets packaged together. And I've learned bits and pieces of those other parts. So for instance, railroad not only has their own retirement system, their own federal unemployment, which is part of what we administer, they have their own labor act. They're not under the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, They're under the Railway Labor Act. That is a whole different set of rules that's administered by a different agency. The Surface Transportation Board administers a lot of the like operational type stuff on the railroads. There's safety regulations that are railroad specific. 
some people trace the beginning of the administrative state back to the Interstate Commerce Commission in 1890-something, and the Interstate Commerce Act. So like all of that stuff kind of interrelates together in a fascinating way when there are, so here's an example that does directly relate to me. When railroad employees are injured on the job, there's no workers' comp type system, no fault payments that uh, exist in a lot of state systems. What they get instead is the right to sue for full tort remedies under the Federal Tort or the Federal Employer Liability Act or FELA. And so under FELA, they can sue the railroad employers, but they have to show, and I'm not sure what the standard is. It might be negligence. It might be something greater than that. But in any case, when they get either a settlement or an award of damages under FELA, part of that can be set up as pay for time loss where they weren't working and they can get railroad retirement credit. And so there's this whole system of allocating part of the settlement to railroad retirement so that we credit them with service months and we credit them with compensation. So that counts toward their benefit when they retire as if they had continued working and hadn't been injured. And so we have to know a little bit about those other parts of the law in order to figure that stuff out. And I guess what's interesting to me is it's almost like what you do has a bunch of its own law. Like it's kind of this freestanding or sounds like this freestanding, free-floating body of interconnected agency and federal laws. And I guess I'm curious about how those impact your everyday. Like are you writing briefs and litigating cases? Are you making agency determinations? Are you interacting with retirees? Like, What are your communication types and what are you doing every day? The basic responsibilities I have, I kind of separate into two buckets. There are the benefit-specific stuff or the, the Railroad Retirement Act, Railroad Unemployment Insurance Act-specific stuff. I do talk to railroad employees and their spouses there is a portion of railroad retirement benefits that can be divisible in a divorce as marital property. Huh. So we see those divorce settlements and we take those kinds of calls from family law attorneys that didn't know railroad retirement existed five minutes before they called me. <laughs> and part of my job is to explain the program, explain how things can be divided. We've got a whole booklet and show them the resources. We do have under a memorandum of understanding with DOJ independent litigating authority. And so they've agreed to let us represent ourselves in circuit court because our appeals, if you appeal from a final board decision, it goes directly to the circuit courts of appeals in federal court. So it can go to the Seventh Circuit, the D.C. Circuit, or whatever circuit you live in. So I've done a couple of those briefs and a couple of oral arguments in the D.C. Circuit and the Fourth Circuit. I was lucky enough in the early pandemic, the argument was in 2020. And then the opinion came out in 2021, so I didn't get to see the argument. But I was on the brief for the United States on uh, Salinas v. Railroad Retirement Board, which is a Supreme Court case. And so I was involved. I was our agency representative to work with the Solicitor General's office on defending the United States in that case. Uh, that was a fascinating experience. So there's a little bit of litigation, but that's, I would say, not most of what I do. Most of what I do on the benefit side is agency determinations writing individual appeals, recommending decisions for the three-member board, and then also legal opinions interpreting the act. We might get a question from our programs folks or our field service folks about a particular application of state law marriage. You know, is this person a spouse under the act or how we interpret parts of our act? 
and the Office of General Counsel has responsibility for issuing those kinds of legal opinions. And so I'll draft some of those as well. And it sounds like you do a lot of different writing and a lot of different communication to a lot of different audiences. How do you think about communicating law and in sometimes I imagine quite complicated administrative law to these various audiences, whether one day it's a member of the review panel and one day it's a lawyer who doesn't know much about it and one day it might just be a person who gets is entitled to benefits. It's definitely a challenging aspect of it and understanding the audience and understanding what they need to get out of it and also kind of what level I can explain it at. So if I'm talking to a, a former railroad employee or their former spouse who they're divorcing about what part of his benefit or her benefit can be divided in the divorce, that's a different kind of conversation at a different level than I would have with, say, their attorney, who is a family law attorney that probably knows a lot of division of property stuff and just needs to know, okay, how is this different than my usual ERISA-type plan orders? Because we're not that. And so that's a lot of times the conversation I have with attorneys. Apologize to the 98% of your listeners who don't know why that's important or what ERISA is. And apologies to the other 2% that do. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and maybe we could talk a little bit about that because there is a joke, I think, among the practicing lawyers that sort of know this world of benefits. Not We'll save the trains for a little bit later in the conversation, that it may be seen as a, I don't want to speak for those people, but a boring area of legal practice. And I guess I'm curious, A, if you actually find it exciting or B, what you find exciting about it. I don't think it's boring. I think it's very niche. So one of the reasons, going back to when I was at Social Security, that I was looking for other opportunities once I got into the federal government was a little bit of a fear that if I stayed at social too long in the position I was in, which was as a disability decision writer for uh, administrative law judges, social security disability is very complex, but it's also very much isolated. It's sort of its own thing. And the law does not translate to say ADA disability accommodation or workers comp because it's a whole different scheme. And so I was worried about sort of getting pigeonholed into this is my only area of expertise. Hmm. Whereas coming to the Railroad Retirement Board, we're a fairly small office. The whole agency is less than 800 people. And there are 15 lawyers, maybe 20 if you count other offices outside of Office of General Counsel. So we all have to be generalists. I mentioned before, I kind of separate my stuff into two buckets. The second bucket, which I think we'll get to in a little bit, is sort of the general government stuff. So I do some procurement and contracting. That's the same throughout the government. There's not necessarily a lot of specific stuff that is different about the Railroad Retirement Board. I administer our ethics program in conjunction with my boss. And so the ethics component, every government agency has ethics. So I have those kinds of skills that are more transferable, uh, that are not specific to our agency. But going back to your question, like, what do I find interesting about the benefits work? I think it really has a deep impact on the people who you're dealing with. When it's divorces and it's people that are talking about, well, how much of my benefit is going to go to the former spouse? Like this is the rest of their life. They're talking about what their financial picture is going to look like. And it really has deep meaning to those people, even though it might just be one case out of many on my desk. It is the most important thing to those people 
that's happening to them at that time. Hmm. If it's a benefits appeal and it's somebody who applied for disability because they feel like they can't do their job anymore, doing it right, whatever that looks like, applying the law correctly, making sure that we reach the right decision is important. But we also owe those people a coherent explanation of why we reached that decision, (laughs) I think. And so I find that rewarding. If I can explain to them, if I can make people feel that they've been heard and that their arguments were taken into consideration and we've reached the best possible answer given the law that Congress has handed us to administer, sometimes those results aren't what I would want. But as long as I can say with a clear conscience that we reached the best result we could given the law and the facts we had, I feel pretty good about my job in that sense. It reminds me of something that judge for whom I clerk, Judge Katzman, who unfortunately passed away a little bit ago, used to say to us when we were law clerks, which was the people in my courtroom, this is often a life or death huge moment for them. It's going to fundamentally change their life. And if they leave without feeling like they were heard and given their day in court or they their day before the government, then we haven't done our job as lawyers and as judges and as the Second Circuit. And it sounds very similar to your message of, at the very least, people need to be heard by their government. And I think that's really important. I like being in a customer service kind of position (laughs) where I can take those phone calls from people. I think it is easy for people, especially if you don't have that kind of public-facing spot, to get a little bit lost in the bureaucracy. And I am fortunate enough and lucky enough to be in a position here where I understand most of the bureaucracy of where I work, and I'm in a position where if I need to, I can find the right person to push on Hmm. or to get through the bureaucracy for people that need it. We should be helping people and not trying to get in their way. And so when I'm able to do that for people, I think that's also a really valuable thing. One of the other things you talked about was sort of the transferability of skills. And one of the questions that I get a lot from students and people who are just starting out in their government legal path is, I really want to work fill in the blank on this issue or at this agency, but I've got an offer on this issue or this agency. Is it better to sort of start in the government and sort of move within, or is it better to go find some area-specific private practice experience and then try to move in government. I'd be curious about your take on that. I think the first government job is always the hardest. It's easier to laterally transfer within the government. Some of that is the government tends to have its own vocabulary. And so it's more challenging if you're coming from the outside to write a resume or characterize your experience in a way that makes sense to public sector employees, especially since there are a fair number of us that you know haven't worked in private practice. I can't look at a resume and see somebody say, I'm a 50-year associate at X law firm, and for me to kind of understand what that really means, because I've never been in that position. Hmm. But if I look at somebody's resume and it says, I was a GS-14 pay grade lawyer for the Environmental Protection Agency, I have a pretty good picture of what that looks like and what kind of responsibilities they're liable to have had. And it's not to say that the fifth-year associate can't articulate that, but it's more difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think there are always some hiring managers that may sort of tend to go with the known quantity over the unknown. Hmm. 
Interesting. That's my sense of it. I think there are also just some peculiarities about there are just a lot more federal jobs you can apply for as a current federal employee right? in terms of hiring authorities than you can as a member of the public for not so much for attorneys, but for other federal jobs. Veterans preference is a big deal. For someone unfamiliar with veterans preference, can you just say what you mean by that? Yes. Under competitive service, which is most of the federal government's hiring, if you are a veteran of the United States military, you get certain preference in hiring. You basically go to the front of the line if you are qualified for the position within your group. Some people refer to five-point and ten-point preference because if they're testing or otherwise scoring applications on like one to a hundred, the bonus is that for any sort of veteran that's served, I think since basically since 9-11 and served for two years with an honorable discharge or, or a, I'm misstating this, but essentially if you have the right veteran status, you get five point preference. If you were disabled in service, you might get 10 point preference, hmm. but that process bumps you ahead of other qualified people within the same band, so to speak. So they have to consider the veterans first. Attorney hiring works a little bit differently because we are accepted service, not competitive service. And so agencies are told under regulation, we have to take veteran preference into consideration, like to the maximum extent practical. And I think there's some federal circuit case law that says that's sort of a non-judicial standard. <laughs> so it's hard to it's hard to evaluate, but it's still a thing that is looked on favorably. Sure. So if you have prior military service, definitely something to keep on your resume and be willing to talk about. And talk to me a little bit about what makes a good government agency lawyer. So we've talked a lot about sort of the specifics of your work, both on the benefits side and on just the general agency side. If we're to take a step back and you were talking, I don't know, maybe you're someone who's a 2L at your old law school and they asked you, like, what skills do you think a government lawyer needs or what personality types tend to be more successful in the government? How would you answer that? I think one of the things that makes me good at my job, maybe that's the way I'll approach it, is being able to read a lot of really technical material uh, and kind of glean the important stuff out of it. Hmm. Government agencies, at least at the federal level, are pretty much all creatures of statute. And so everything comes back to what does our statute say we can do for those that have been looking at recent Supreme Court cases and things like that. Like that's part of the debate about around what agencies can do and what our statute says. But like that's the place you always have to start as an agency lawyer is where's our statutory basis for being able to do this? Maybe it's not our enabling statute. Maybe it's not the Railroad Retirement Act. Maybe it's some other general government statute that lets us do something, or there are other statutes that limit what you can do. One of the other areas that I work in is appropriations law, which is all about how Congress tells us we can spend money. Hmm. And there is an entire, it's called the Red Book. It's like 15 chapters, 1500 pages of material put out by the Government Accountability Office, which is technically part of Congress. They're a legislative agency about how we can and can't spend money and what purposes we can use it for and how long it's available for. And so like that's a very dense part of the material that you have to go through. And so it really helps to be able to read that stuff and distill it down to its essence. 
Same thing with regulations. One of the jobs that I'm currently charged with is sort of going through our Railroad Retirement Board regulations, some of which haven't been updated in a long time, and figuring out what we need to fix. Every regulation in the Code of Federal Regulations has a statutory site that says this is the statute that Congress passed that gives us the authority to do what it is that we're doing. And so the relationship between those things and all that technical detail, uh, the attention to detail is really, really critical, I think. It's harder to be sloppy isn't the word I'm looking for, but it's harder to be imprecise when it comes to that kind of thing, I think. And how do you think about like proposing changes to regulations, right? Like you're not the one, this has always fascinated me as somebody who like teaches how to read a statute, right? How to interpret a statute that's sort of bread and butter of my everyday life as a legal writing professor. How do you, as someone sitting in your office in Chicago, Illinois, propose changes that are going to have an effect on a train worker or a train retiree in California or somewhere else. How do you think about that process? Some of it is just realizing where there are problems, uh, where there are gaps. So one of the first projects I worked on when I got to the board was a legal opinion, which was somebody who had applied for benefits. And I'm going to truncate the story a little bit because the details of it aren't that important. But essentially, we were, our regulation said we had to handle the case a certain way based on what the Social Security Act, the statute, used to say. But the Social Security Act had been amended since we passed that regulation, and essentially nobody at the Railroad Retirement Board initially noticed. Hmm. You know, there are hundreds, thousands of pages of laws that get passed every year. We do have an Office of Legislative Affairs that tries to keep track of all that stuff, but it's easy for those kinds of things to kind of fall through, fall through the gaps. And so I came to this realization and we wrote up the legal opinion that says, well, actually, we have to follow the statute language because the statute and the regulation don't match anymore. And if the statute and the regulation conflict, we have to do what the statute says. So, but we haven't gotten around to fixing the regulation. The regulation still has the old language in it. So it's on a list on my work laptop that says we need to fix this regulation. Uh, I have a running list of those. So that's one of the things. One of the other stories, and this isn't about Railroad Retirement Board regulations, but it's a recent change to the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure that I was able to help initiate. So I don't know about you, but when I went to law school, I remember the federal rules as essentially being presented as they came down from the mount on tablets and like nobody (laughs) talked about how we got them. No, where they came no, from. of course not. And so, but a few years ago, I happened to be browsing Twitter, and it was Sean Murata, actually, that was talking about a proposal that he had submitted to the Judicial Conference about changes that they thought should be made to a particular rule of procedure. I was like, this is a thing? I didn't know this was a thing. But he had written about it, and prior to December 1st of 2022, there was a rule, there still is, but I'll get there. The Federal Rules of Civil Procedure provide for special handling for cases involving Social Security benefits and immigration cases. Normally, you have if you file records in court or documents in court, you have to redact personally identifiable information like Social Security numbers so that it's not available in open court. But one of the exceptions to that rule is you don't have to redact administrative records for agency proceedings. 
we do a lot of because we do benefit stuff, we have like earnings records and tax records from individuals who applied to us for benefits. We have a lot of social security wage information. And so the rules say, if it's a social security case, you don't have to redact any of that stuff, but we're going to apply a restriction on the record so that it's public, but you can't electronically access it through PACER unless you are a party. So if you want to see it, you have to like physically go to the courthouse and ask for the paper copy or the equivalent of it. You can't access it remotely. But the rule didn't say anything about railroad retirement cases, which are functionally the same because they're the same kind of benefits. They involve the same kind of record. Right. So I convinced my general counsel a few years ago to propose a rule or propose a change, an amendment to the rules to say, we think this same restriction on electronic access should apply to benefits cases under the Railroad Retirement Act because they're basically the same. And we cited a bunch of court cases that have said, when you're interpreting disability cases under the Railroad Retirement Act, you can look to Social Security precedent because the acts were written in parallel. So it worked its way through the judicial conference process. It was assigned to the Committee for Appellate Rules And I served as our agency point of contact for that. There were some questions for us. And long story short, it eventually got adopted by the Judicial Conference and adopted by the Supreme Court, and it went through without any objection from Congress. So as of December 1st, 2022, Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 25A5 says that railroad retirement cases are protected the same way as social security cases, and immigration cases. And so that's something that it benefits the agency in that we don't have to do try to do redactions, but it benefits our claimants as well because they don't have to worry about their personal information, their tax information, their earnings info being exposed in court just because they appealed the agency's final action. Uh, so I think it's a win-win kind of for everybody. I love that story for so many reasons. First of all, that it starts on Twitter, which as anybody who knows me knows, I'm interested in anything that starts there. But also, it's a great encapsulation, I think, of government work, right? I think this idea that there are all these rules and all these people that are all trying to do the right thing, but they don't always fit together and the statute doesn't always match the regulation and the rule might not match the regulation, or everybody agrees that it's the same concept, but because it doesn't match in some way, shape, or form, it needs a change. But the change can happen when government employees like you and people in your office make that change happen, which I think is fantastic. With a lot of patience, too. Yes. Because I will, I will say, I think we wrote that letter in late 2017. So it was about five years to work through that entire process. Wow. Because much like when agencies regulate, the Judicial Conference has a process they work through. So it goes to a subcommittee that looks at it and they make a recommendation and it kind of works its way through. So you got to be patient. And you got, There's still got to be somebody pushing from the back end to mm-hmm. help it go through. But it's really rewarding when it happens. Love it. So just two or three more questions before we finish up, Peter. And the first is, we've been talking a lot about what it's like to do your specific job in the government and also how to get a government job and what it means to have a government job. I guess now that you've been doing this for a while, what do you think about 
government service for lawyers generally? Like, what is the thing that still excites you when you wake up every morning? Or what is the thing that you wish would change? Or where do you think lawyers are going in government service? Like, how do you think about that connection? Let me start with the practical stuff, and then I'll go to the the touchy-feely, warm, (laughs) fuzzies kind of thing. So federal government pays well for government lawyers. It's a comfortable living. I'm a GS-15, which is kind of the top of the civil service ranks at this point. I don't feel shy about that because my salary is public record. You can look it up. Sure. And so that to me is also a benefit of government service that you kind of know where everybody stands. Hmm. There's a lot of talk about like salary transparency in the private sector. We have it in government for the most part. You kind of know where everybody stands. And I like that. I think that's a big benefit. My hours are fairly reasonable. I understand there are folks, especially in DOJ, that spend a lot more time litigating, and so you're much more on a a more difficult time frame. But for the most part, I put my work phone down when I'm done at the end of the day, and I don't have to pick it up again until the next morning. The times I have to work weekends are very rare and few and far between. And when I do, like when we had to do a lot of legislative work for, to support the, the uh, CARES Act at the beginning of the pandemic, it's for a good cause and you can tell that it's for a good reason. Hmm. It's not because a partner was on vacation and didn't look at the thing until the night before it was due and now you have this fire drill to hurry up and fix things. And again, apologies to any partners I might have offended or firm associates. But I feel like there's less of that in government. Sure. Not to say we don't have bad managers, but I've been very fortunate to have very good ones. And so the only times I have those kinds of emergencies are really when it's for a good reason and we're getting something useful done out of it. Broader than that, uh, on the warm, fuzzy side of things, I really do think, especially in the agency I'm in, it's easy to see the benefit that we give people. We are lucky enough to be in a sector of the government where our constituency knows us and appreciates us. The railroad industry is very conscientious of the fact that they have us as a sort of the separate agency from Social Security, and they're very protective of that. We have a pretty good relationship and a direct line to those people in a way that I think not every agency does. Our agency leadership is actually three board members, one of which is recommended by railroad labor Hmm. and one of whom is recommended by railroad management. And then the third one is our chairman who is supposed to not have any other connection with the railroad industry. He's supposed to represent the public interest. So if the railroad carriers are unhappy with a policy of the agency, like they can make it known through the management member. And similarly, we hear from the union side through the labor member. And so it keeps us well grounded, I think, and close to the people that we are supposed to be serving. And that helps keep our mission of serving retirees and making sure that people get the benefits they're entitled to very front of mind. So last two questions, Peter. The first one is from my intern, Abe, who's here listening live to the interview. And I'm so glad for Abe, Abe's help this summer. When he was preparing this, proposed this question, which I've never asked to a guest, but I think is great, which is, if there's any time that you've learned something from another lawyer in your career that you've sort of taken as yours as a lawyer, or anything you share with young lawyers about being a lawyer and, your, and the process for that? 
rather than saying one specific lawyer, I'll go back to like, I've been very fortunate to have good supervisors, good mentors, good leaders that have helped me be a better lawyer. They've been kind, they've been thoughtful, they hold me to high standards, but also have shown me compassion Hmm. and empathy and reminders that we're very fortunate, I feel very fortunate to be in this career path because it's not one that I have to ruin my back doing it. I'm not going to wreck myself physically through a lot of physical labor. I don't have to be out in the elements. There's a lot to like about it. And we're not emergency room physicians. This stuff is important, but it's rarely urgent in the sense of an emergency. Nobody's going to die because you didn't get a particular task done today instead of tomorrow. It's sidetracking a little bit. (laughs) So one of the side benefits of working at the Railroad Retirement Board is you realize how much train-related language there is in everyday idioms. So I'm going to sidetrack for just a second. Please. So because I had been an emergency dispatcher before law school, when I got to law school and I was doing like 1L exams, I felt like that experience gave me a perspective that some of my classmates didn't have in terms of the level of stress or the level of importance I attached on it because I'd been in a position where I was dispatching emergency services, fire engines or ambulances or police or what have you. And like, if I don't do well on an exam, nobody's going to (laughs) die. And that helped me a lot in law school, just keeping things in perspective. And the same thing as a lawyer, I think in my current position, this stuff is critical to a lot of people, but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily minutes and hours urgent in the same way. So I'll ask you the question that I ask as the last question for all my guests, which is to leave folks with a piece of advice. Um, We're doing this interview sort of towards the end of August. We have a bunch of people who just took the bar, are about to start their legal career. What would you recommend to those people or what do you wish you knew when you were starting out 10 or so years ago? I think this is a very frustrating answer. And I think it's informed a lot by what we talked about earlier with my experience after law school with how long it took me to find a job. But I believe that there is an irreducible amount of luck involved in any career path. So all the resume advice and all the what classes should I take and all of that is useful. It's necessary, but not sufficient. (laughs) It can get you more lottery tickets, but you still need somebody to draw your number. And the fact that that hasn't happened for you yet if you are that person, does not mean that you are doing anything wrong or that there's something you should be doing different or better. Sometimes it just means that you haven't gotten lucky yet. And so much of the other advice that's out there is about figuring out how to help yourself get lucky faster or more often. But I think it does everyone a disservice not to acknowledge the role of luck and being in the right place at the right time in order to do that. As an example, I really love my current job. (laughs) The only reason that I got here is because I 
applied for the Railroad Retirement Board job because it was a thing that the position specifically said, we're looking for people that have experience with the Social Security Act. And that's like, not many jobs have that as a requirement. Hmm. And so I wasn't even sure that I wanted that job. It didn't look like it was going to be a pay increase. I wasn't sure how much extra responsibility it was going to be, but I thought, okay, fine, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And then it turned out at the interview that there was more promotion potential than I realized, and the duties were going to be more interesting, and I wouldn't trade this job for anything at this point. But like, I didn't know that at the time, hmm. and if I hadn't put myself out there to take that opportunity, or if I hadn't gotten lucky enough to get hired at Social Security instead of another agency, right? this job I probably wouldn't have been quite as well qualified for, and maybe I don't get hired here, and maybe I'm working somewhere else. Hmm. Not to say that those other possibilities might not be just as rewarding, but I don't know what those are. So again, acknowledging the role of luck, even as you try to minimize it, understanding there's no way to eliminate it entirely. You can't make it a sure thing. There's no ethical and moral way to fix the numbers so that you know your winning ticket's going to get dropped. I love that. I think that's a great place to end. So thank you so much, Peter, for doing this. It's been fun getting to know you first online and then meeting in person and now doing this interview. And hopefully you'll get a few more government lawyers, benefits lawyers, and maybe even a few trade lawyers as a result. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.